Welcome everyone to the RSP cast. I'm Matt Waldman. This is Russ Landy joining me once again. We're going to end our series here that we've done over the past month on evaluation mistakes and lessons learned. And we saved the most voluminous position <laughs> yeah. for last, which is of course, quarterback. <laughs> There's so, no doubt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're just laughing because I mean, I know that in the, in the 15, 16 years I've been doing this, I mean, I'm sure, you know, we each could, in that span of time, I'm sure we each, each of us could write um, some pretty lengthy chapters, maybe half of a book or a whole book, you know, basically on, you know, on quarterback play and what, what's learned from the mistakes that we've made. I mean, you know, the, the, the crazy thing about this position, Russ, is just that it's not just that offensive scheme is the match for the player and, and what what it can do to minimize a player's mistakes, but there's that physical end of the spectrum. Then there's the how conceptually skilled they are and whether the team is going to budge on that a little bit and say we can play up to his athletic ability or we can play down to um, you know certain things that he does well. Or a guy can be a, a not that great of an athlete and be an absolutely fantastic thrower of the football. And it, there's just like so many combinations. And now that the league is becoming more open and accepting to all of this, it becomes even harder. Oh, way harder. I mean, just think about it. Tom Brady is going to his 10th Super Bowl, and he's at best an adequate athlete, probably a bad athlete for a quarterback. And Pat Mahomes is the opposite end of the spectrum. He's a truly special guy in everything he does, but he's nowhere near the athlete of Lamar Jackson. Yeah. So you have three guys that are all winning in different ways, but the athletics are so different between the three. And that's why, to me, I think it, you make a perfect point about the system is important. And it's not just, and I don't want to get in saying a system quarterback, but the smart coaches look at what a player does and says, what does he do well? Well, why wouldn't you accentuate that? Instead of trying to slam a square peg into a round hole and force him to do what your quarterback before him may have done who may have been the complete opposite in three or four major skill sets. Yeah, and you just brought up Mahomes, and this is kind of a little bit of a tangent, but it's it fits with what's going on here in a way. Because I was doing this um, article that I just wrote a little bit of a vignette on Stevie Scott, the Indiana, Indiana running back and his past pro skills. And I was going to make this point about saying, well, you know, unless you're the Kansas City Chiefs, you don't really need, you, you know, you don't need a back to be, good at pass pro because I always hear people say that. So then I go look at the data and the interesting thing about the data is that Patrick Mahomes, like during that year with um, Kareem Hunt got hit more times than any other quarterback in the league. I mean, I mean, even above Russell Wilson, who's perennially a punching bag in the league, he got hit more times. He had more pressures and it was like by a wide margin. I mean, like uh, an average of one more per game than the next bet last team. And then even, you know, 2019, it got a little bit better, but it was still the Chiefs were one of only, I think they were still fifth most in pressures allowed, you know, last year. And this year, I mean, while they were middle of the pack, there were only two other playoff teams that even were as bad as the Chiefs in terms of pressures allowed. And that was... Seattle <laughs> and Washington, which you would expect because Washington squeaked into the playoffs yep. essentially as, as a result. So when you look at that and then on top of it, Patrick Mahomes is, you know, 
is one of the worst in terms of completion percentage on play action plays. Um, and except when he's under heavy pressure and then he's great. Um, so he, oftentimes you look at this and you realize it's like, there's not this like prescriptive template. And as much as we want to talk about, or you hear on mainstream media, the, the, the prototypical QB. And I would just say, we there, can, isn't one. there isn't one, not anymore. It's over. Yeah. You know, Matthew Stafford might be the last prototypical quarterback that actually mattered as being a prototypical quarterback, him or, or Matt Ryan, somewhere in that neighborhood. And since then, it's been like it, 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 lots of things have changed. Yeah. And I mean, hey, don't get me wrong. If you have an elite guy who's not a good athlete to make plays with his feet, but he's elite within the pocket. Yeah, NFL teams are still going to love him Yeah, because throwing the ball is still the most important facet of your offense. But the problem is, unless you're elite as a pocket passer, now you have to look at, okay, what other ways can you help this offense because you're not going to be able to move the team like a Brady or a Rodgers can. You have to be able to do things outside of that traditional pocket passing and I think that's one of the things that gets me when I look at it, gets me excited when I see a guy like Herbert with the Chargers. I mean, this is a guy that he's a really athletic guy, but he's not a traditional pocket guy because he is an athletic guy. He likes to get out on the periphery and make plays. And I just think the game has changed so much. The passing is so dramatic. And the ability to throw while on the move and from different arm angles has changed the position so dramatically that I think it's made quarterback evaluations way harder to identify the guys that are not just going to stick like a Kyler Murray has made it. But we don't know if Kyler's ever going to be really good at this point. There's been flashes, but there's also been a lot of inconsistency. But to find those guys that can really play at a very high level consistently nowadays, to me, that's a big challenge. Yeah. I mean, and, and now that we're kind of talked about where we are presently, I think about the past and how we got there. And like a player that comes to mind for me that was a real opportunity for me to learn was Bruce Gridkowski, the Toledo quarterback. I had that year, I had Jay Cutler as my top quarterback. I had Vince Young second, and I had Bruce Gridkowski third and Matt Leinart fourth. Um, and I really liked what I saw from Gridkowski. I loved his mobility. He was a former um, point guard out of the Pittsburgh area. Um, he was someone who could really distribute the ball well, move around, had nice accuracy in certain ranges of the field. But what I learned in, early on in that first year of doing this was there are certain things that a quarterback has to be able to do in terms of having the arm strength and velocity to throw the ball in areas where the defense says, we're going to play this style of defense and dare you to throw that ball into that hole, that honey hole in cover two, being able to throw the intermediate out, you know, being able to, to hit tight coverage windows. And at first, you know, it was, you know, as someone who, this was the other lesson too, was understanding that it takes a couple of years to really see how a quarterback is something we've talked about over the, over the months here, no doubt, but watching Krakowski, I'm thinking, well, he led the, he led the NFL and quarterback rating in the preseason and, and John Gruden's rolling with them as a starter, you know, look at this. And it's, and I, and I'm excited. I'm thinking, wow, look at that. That's that. I can't believe that that's working out so well. And then as the season went along, defenses were like, 
he doesn't have the arm. We're going to force him to make these throws. And he couldn't make the throws. And the next thing you know, Bruce Gretkowski was a career backup for the Raiders and for the Steelers and had some nice games and oh, showed yeah. and, and definitely showed a lot as a backup quarterback, but he was not a guy you wanted to um, put a game plan around and you couldn't put a game plan around long-term. No. And I think a lot of that stems from, and this is the, the, the thing that to me is so hard with quarterbacks are so unique is I was taught early on. And I really believe it that the most mistakes in drafting quarterbacks comes from overvaluing arm strength because people fall in love with the big cannon to throw it everywhere at 400 miles an hour and they forget everything else. But at the same time, there's a reason arm strength is so overvalued because when you don't have enough, it literally becomes a defensive coordinator's favorite day because he only has to guard about 70% of the field. And to me, the guy with the least arm that became a productive quote-unquote quarterback would be Andy Dahl. Yeah. This is the guy, and that's where Gretkowski may have fit, right? He may have been able to work with that. Because if you remember, when he was successful within Cincinnati, he couldn't do certain things. The ball wasn't going to the far side hash. He wasn't driving the, the deep corners or whatever it may have been. But they were so good in other areas and in the protection and his decision-making and anticipation that he could get away with it. But it's really hard when a guy is lacking both in at least minimum volume, minimum minimum of arm strength, anticipation, and quick release, it's so hard to overcome if you don't have those three in at least a minimum level because the defensive coordinators, they're in love with it. If they don't have to cover the whole field, it makes their life easy. Yeah, and you have to stretch the horizontal and vertical axes of the field. I mean, it's just it just becomes, it's, a, it's just a baseline expectation that has to be there. And whether you do that, by with your legs and running around a little bit, you know, because we can look at guys like Deshaun Watson and Lamar Jackson and say they don't have the velocity on their arms to, to maybe throw some of these types of throws. Now they can throw it deep. They can throw it over your head in a heartbeat, but can they, can they spin it in there on the deep out? Can they force it in the defense, force you to make that um, type of throw? And that's where these guys struggle. But at the same time, Defenses can't keep up with them on design rolls or any type of throwback or any type of threat of the run that compensates enough for those types of sideline throws that they can build a winning offense around it, and at least for, for to make a contending team. Yeah, you know, it's a great point. It really is. I mean, it's a great example also of the smart people look at the quarterback that they have and say, how are we going to fit? the players around them. And that's one of the things that totally we're going to tangent here also, whether people love or hate um, the hiring of Dan Campbell in Detroit, one of the things I've really been impressed with both he and Brad Holmes that they've said over and over is we don't know what system we're going to play because we're going to figure out what players we have and what tailors to them. And I said, not enough coaches say that. A lot of coaches come in saying, here's my system. And I don't care if you're Lamar Jackson you're going to run the New England Patriots offense. And if you do that with Lamar, it's going to fail. Just like if you took Brady and said, all right, you're going to run the RPOs and run in Baltimore, Brady might be broken in two within 10 minutes and his career would be over. So um, that's one thing when I see Detroit and see what he says, it gets me excited. See, to me, it, the arm strength is one. But the, the one that really was a learning experience for me above all else was Brandon Weedy. Because I liked Brandon. He had a pretty quick release. 
very strong arm. He was a good enough athlete, not a top one, but good enough. I interviewed him at the combine for about 45 minutes. His agent put us together, very bright kid, could speak, do all that, no problem, understood football. And when he didn't make it, I couldn't figure out what it was. And then I started asking coaches and they said, Russ, they said, the thing you've got to learn, and sadly it took me this long to learn it, was he said, Russ, there's two release quicknesses in football. He said, there's the physical from the moment the ball starts to move until it's gone. And he said, the other one, which is very hard to identify, which is from the moment the quarterback actually decides who he's throwing to till the moment the ball moves. And, and it takes a lot. And sometimes you can never find it. certain guys like Brady are very good at disguising when they actually make the decision. But most college quarterbacks give it away. You can see they, their, their head sort of jerks back or pauses or whatever it may be. And with Whedon, the more I watched him in the NFL, it became clear that even though he's a brilliant guy, when you sit and talk with him and, and he understands it, it's just that reaction from the moment he sees the guy open till the moment his body transitions to start moving the ball, there's a delay. And that makes his overall release quickness is slow, even though his physical release quickness is solid. And that was a big lesson for me. And it's still hard to decipher now because you have to really watch a lot of film to start to get a feel for when they identify the target and when they start with the decision to get rid of the ball. Yeah, that's such a great point because we've talked about him before in the sense that it's like, he the I remember with him it was I felt like he was the guy who knew the answer to the math problem and but the problem was is that he kind of raised his hand and and blurted out the answer and it turned out to be the wrong question like it was like he had the answer he had the right answer to the wrong question and it was like he he just didn't always you know he was in a hurry to get to that spot and not read what was happening a guy in that um I don't, it wasn't in the same class, but it was um, in that same era that I really liked and it taught me how much I really didn't know about processing information and processing coverage and reading leverage and, and some of the things that you just mentioned, being able to, to, to really process fast. And that was John Beck. I, I, I really liked John Beck and I, that was like probably the first one that I looked at and was like, Wow, this didn't work out at all. You know, <laughs> this was this was this was pretty awful. Um, because and then there were other things about him that I mean I kept hearing people say, oh well he you know he 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 has the the volume in his voice of like a of basically a mouse being muffled in a pillow. But um, you know at the same time it was just somebody that I think physically the tools were just below par. And then on top of it, he didn't have the processing either. And when you had that combination, I kept I kept finding that I was overrating guys as like underrated players who were really nothing more than good backups because I wasn't yet at the level of I was looking at running back position, I was looking at wide receiver, and I was seeing how people overrated the physical skills. So much so that I was like, well, I bet it's probably the same way with quarterback. And it just kind of bled. I, I didn't make the conscious decision. I think it just bled into it because I was oh, focusing on, on other things. And at, at some point, like as we get through this a little bit more and start talking more of our mistakes, this guy was probably the big, you know, Gregkowski and then moving to Beck. These were guys that 
I continued to just overvalue because of the fact that they they didn't they weren't just quite up to snuff on the on the physical end. And you know Beck's an interesting one because I I watched a lot of film on him. I remember seeing him at the All Star games, and I remember when Garoppolo came out, and I watched him and I said, "Gosh, the release quickness is sort of similar to Beck because Beck had a really short, quick release, and Beck didn't have a great arm, and neither did Jimmy." And I kept looking at Garoppolo, going, "Gosh, I really like him," but I started getting nervous. And God, he really <laughs> does remind me a little bit of Beck, and it, and it almost scared me off because I give Garoppolo a top of the second round grade. But the, the, the similarities had me nervous because I like Beck. I thought he would be a, like your phenomenal career backup because I thought great decision-making, balls out in a heartbeat. And although he doesn't have a good enough arm, he has a good enough to be a backup arm, and he's not going to put the ball in bad spots. But, yeah, that's a – I tell you one thing. It's such a fine line between where is enough physical talent to be a starter. Yeah. Because, I mean, if you look back, and, and this may have been right at the beginning of you doing this, but Mark Bolger, no one is going to ever look at him and yeah. say, this guy had a cannon. But when you go watch the film, and, and I only bring him up partly to brag, because I... Yeah, I, you had it. I remember you had a good grade on him. Yeah. But he had, I think, just barely good enough arm, but he had, most people felt and still feel, the quickest release since Marino. And was one of the best anticipatory throwers ever. So you can get away with it in certain situations with that. But that's the hard part to me is what was the difference between him and Beck physically? Are we talking it's minuscule yeah. in terms of arm strength and, and, and relief quickness. But Beck really never and I and I like Beck, but Beck really could never make that jump where Bolger literally was I think a two or three year pro bowler and threw 30 or 40 touchdowns three or four times, and the difference can be so fine. And, again, it points to sometimes you're in the right spot with the right coach who identifies your skill set and realizes what you can and can't do, and he doesn't expose you. Yeah, I I would argue, I would probably say that I'm still on that range of making that type of um, error on that side of it because – Jake Fromm's a good example. Jake Fromm's a player who, who you know, I, I remember, you know, looking at some of the things that were talked about with his arm, and I would sit there and I'd look at the, I'd look at things like last year where the, the court, the the, um, offensive coordinator, um, asked him to make drops that made no sense with the routes. So he's throwing the ball late and throwing it further away. On top of that, um for what the route type was, which would make one look like you don't have enough arm strength to make that play. Nope. But at the same time, there comes a point where it's like when I'm hearing people I know are like, yeah, I saw him work out and the arm just wasn't there. I mean, it looked awful. And these are planned throws and these are like rehearsed throws that you should be, you should be, be able Kill to show it. your best. You should be killing it. And he wasn't killing it. That was, that should be an you know something to note and 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 that was something that I probably tend to ignore a little bit more than I should have and so those are the types of guys but even then it's like I remember seeing the echoes of those guys that we just we've just mentioned and I thought to myself well Buffalo he's either going to sink or swim in a place like that um, being able to because he's going to have to make some of those types of throws no doubt that to me is a tough offense for him yeah. Because especially when you look at Josh Allen, 
you're not going to be able to run the same stuff. You're no. going to have to change everything. And that doesn't, for an offense, that kills your offense. Yeah. You it's, want to be able to plug your guy in. We're going to see, a, we'd see a lot of shallow crossing routes on that one where when they level out all those crossing routes, it won't be the deep ones that, that yeah. go across the field that 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 from would be throwing that's for sure but um but yeah who's another guy that that you've uh well you know probably the biggest miss of all of my quarterbacks ever is ryan massa when i graded this kid out of syracuse and you know me i have this intricate the whole quarterback charting evaluation system he got the highest grade i've ever given a quarterback um and it's funny i was so sure i was right I graded him. I watched tons of film, and I was like, I don't get why other people aren't on him. And about a week after the Senior Bowl, I called my buddy who works for an NFL team, and I said, hey, man, I got to ask you about this quarterback. I think I found a guy that no one's talking about that no one likes. And he goes, please don't tell me you're, you're going to blast NASA out there. And I was like, how do you know? He goes, because I got assigned to grade him at the Senior Bowl. He goes, I rejected him at the Senior Bowl. Yet when I threw the film on, he goes, I gave him a top five grade in the whole draft, number one quarterback. And he goes, if you take away my sleeper guy that I'm going to push for, he goes, I'm going to kill you, right? And, of course, he ends up getting drafted in the fourth round. as a five-year backup in the NFL. He's never been heard from again. And when I go back and watch the film of him at Syracuse, there are a few things that stand out. Firstly, he played the very wide base. He really was very wide. So like most guys with a wide base, they don't stride. They try to torque. But he tried to stride. He didn't generate the power in his hips. He tried to stride, and it almost seemed like his launch point became up instead of straight. And a lot of his balls had arc under him when they didn't need to. And I think that hindered, even though he was accurate in college, I think that greatly hindered his accuracy in the NFL, and it allowed defenders to close and make plays on the ball. Also, I think I misinterpreted his ability to sense what was going on around him. In, at Syracuse, I thought the athletic ability, he was able to avoid and do things on the move. In the NFL, when I would watch him in preseason, he almost looked like he didn't even know there were pass rushers around him, which, as you know, watching quarterbacks, it's nice to, you want a quarterback who doesn't feel the pressure, quote unquote, but you don't want him to be completely oblivious to the pressure. Right. There are times he has to move and avoid it, and he looked completely oblivious to the pressure. Very weird thing. I think the weirdest part to me is the people of the Giants spoke very highly of him as a guy that they felt could be a top-end backup and might still develop as a starter. Yet after he left there for the Giants, he was in Jacksonville for a cup of tea, and he's never even been in the league again. Yeah. And that, to me, is very weird. So that one... To this day, I've gone back, like I said, and I've watched a bunch of film. I'm still, I st- like I mentioned, there are a few things I missed on. But gosh, that one to me still, I cannot figure out what I missed on. I hear you. I understand that. And there's, and there's certainly guys like that that, you know, that you don't feel like, based on the film, they look great. So there's things that, that go away off the field that you just have to be cognizant of and realize that, that that the film's the tip of the iceberg. So one guy that was a perfect example of this, and I think I think you'll have a good story about this one because I heard you tell it once, and I've shared it on other podcasts in over the years. Um, it's Nate Davis. I was a huge Nate Me Davis too. fan. Oh, oh my god, he had just such a fantastic ball. He he th- he could just throw that ball so well, 
and he had terrific accuracy. He was someone that could move around the pocket. He was a good athlete. He had a gun of an arm. And oh. even though he had a, a maybe a non-traditional delivery, you know, he worked with a guy like Steve DeBerg, and Steve DeBerg seemed to be pretty happy about what you know, the promise was for Nate Davis. And then you see him with the 49ers. He come in in those preseason games and just tear it up, you know. And, of course, the preseason is different, but still the promise was there. And then it was off to Seattle and then uh, about a week in Indianapolis and then the Arena League. And it's like you watch him, and one of the things that people said that he got drafted later was he had a learning disability. So, you know, at that point, I think for someone like me who's outside of the league, you know, when I hear something like that, that needs to be something that I take into account and just say he may overcome it, and if he is, but there's a real boom bust quality to him. And the bust factor is probably high because there's such a small margin for error in the NFL that if something like that is a large issue, um, then you have to understand that and and probably drop him on your board and, and play the odds a little bit more. But I was so enamored with everything else. you know. Oh, I'm right there with you. I think he was the same year as Stafford, if I remember. It was. Because I think I had Sanchez, then Nate Davis, and then Matt Stafford as my top three. They were my top really, three. Yeah, and I really thought Davis was going to be that guy. I mean, and I know I spoke to my one buddy in particular. He was a scout for a team, and their GM loved Davis. They had him like the number one quarterback. They thought he was going to be a rock star. Um, the learning disability concerned him, but they felt pretty confident because his college quarterback coach, I can't remember who it was, but he was a guy that had been in the NFL. And he swore that this kid would not be a problem with that and whatever. Um, from what I get told, the big issue, and I honestly don't remember the story I told you about him, um, but the issue, there are two issues. I shouldn't say issues. One issue, one story. The issue that I was told was that once he got in the league, the, the marijuana became one of his favorite pastimes, is that he, he fell in love with the idea that you could smoke and play. And it kept him from really staying in shape and advancing to where he needed to be. Because once he was out of the NFL, he actually went and played for the uh, Amarillo Venom. Yeah. In like the low-level arena league and won the MVP like three straight years. And we had him literally signed, sealed, and ready to come to the Alouettes. And he backed out at the airport. Wow. And I think it really came down to, I think he liked the fact that he found a, a nice little home, was playing ball at a low level, and was dominant, and didn't have to deal with any of the responsibilities of being with a pro team at that point. Um, and I think there'd been some disappointment yeah. from what had gone on in the league. Cause I know the Colts, when they brought him in, they brought him at the end of one season. And they were really hopeful at the end of that season that the next year he was going to come in and be their backup and challenge eventually to be their starter. But during that off season, he just didn't do the things they had hoped to prove to them. He was the mature kid they were ready for. And it's a shame because I will say, I mean, like I said, I missed a massive, but I don't remember seeing a kid literally that I thought was going to be a, a really good player in the NFL just wash out so fast. Yeah. And it was it was incredible because his film was ridiculous. Yeah. That and the Colts story was it. Because that was the year that Manning had the neck surgery. Yep, and, exactly. And they were and you were mentioning that basically they thought he was gonna be they had him valued that high. And they he did, was they had a gigantic grade on him. Yeah. And they were really hoping that 
He'd be the backup for that year he came in late, take that offseason, be aggressive and attack the job and challenge to be that guy. And it just went sideways. It's really a shame because, hey, you know what? Maybe he may be thrilled and happy as a lark and no regrets or whatever. But it just, I, to me, everything was sitting there for that trip. Yeah. And it just didn't pan out. He was one of the ones that on film, I couldn't figure out what he was missing. When I would watch him on film, I thought, he has everything. Yeah. Yeah. I loved him. I loved him. Absolutely loved him. So that was, yeah, absolutely a one. And to go back a little bit, you mentioned Dan Campbell. It's funny. I, I was ranting a little bit about Dan Campbell last week because when he got hired, I was with you. The thing that I think most people didn't, they kept hearing about the biting the kneecaps off and all of that. And I'm just like, it's Detroit. And, they, and he wants to talk about being tough and playing tough. And that's, and that's fine. Yeah. And that's great. I have no problem with that because really there's no difference between whether you're, you know, the, the intel, the media who wants to look at him and say he's anti-intellectual. So now we're going to get on his case. Well, then they're going to laud the intellectual guy who doesn't have any leadership skills or any experience on how to like actually manage and delegate or hire people. And then they're, you know, and it's, it's going to be the two sides of the same coin. So for me with Campbell, the whole proof is, is can he hire the right people? Can he get people to work well together? Because the head coach most of the time isn't going to be the tactician. So yep. to me, it, it was a, what I thought was so telling about that was him saying, what I learned from Sean Payton was that number one, you find players who are going to be the same type of players every day. Not the great player who's great one day, and for five days he's absolutely a wreck. You know, Or <laughs> I'm not going to hire a bunch of guys who, who are coaches on staff who can't work well together and have no compatibility because they're constantly going to be at each other's throats and egos are going to get involved and we're never getting anything done. And then you start thinking, and I think, well, what was the team that did that in recent? Oh, the Cleveland Browns before they got their act together. You know, that was a soap opera and a half. So uh, listening to that and as someone who's managed, you know, enough people and big teams, when I heard that, I was like, I don't know how anybody can't see that and then i realized yeah. like, oh yeah well if you're media and you've never managed anybody you've never hired anyone you've never worked in a team before in that type of environment then you would know and so therefore you are basing it on things that you're you know that your former you know that the former guy in your seat used to look at and that guy used to look at and whatever you know the donut eating public would basically look at, you know, when I yeah. joke oh, around about it. It's so that. true. So true. I mean, I, and I get that they want to attack him because he's not the well-spoken suit and tie. And we're going to give you all the cliches guy, but you know what? There's been a lot of really successful coaches with the, the shirt and tie and business background. And there's also been a lot. I mean, do you think Belichick when he first got the Patriots or Brown job, was he Mr. Buttoned up and Mr. Yeah. Pretty in his answers. No, he was old school football. I mean, yeah. maybe a little less verbose, but he was old school. Same with Parcells. And I'm not saying it's going to definitely work. No one knows until we see how they turn out. But I just love the fact that he said, I am not married to a system. Yeah. I am going to see what I have to base the players, what system is going to fit the players I have. Because if you try to force a system down the throat, I just don't see it being successful. Yeah. And most quarterbacks will stare back to quarterbacks will 
tell you to a man that in the NFL, a lot of the guys who've played in the NFL will say, I felt like that my offensive coordinator um, thought he was playing a video game and that basically he operated the joystick and everyone else were pixels on a screen. Yep, 100%. Yeah, yeah. couldn't agree more. It is, to me, the biggest problem in the NFL is, and I'm not, trust me, I'm not an Nexus, no expert. You're never going to have me as a coordinator or a position coach. That would be a disaster. But it's the, if you're a coordinator, the really good ones, at least the ones I've been around, yes, they have what they like to do, but they hear what the quarterback is also saying. And when the quarterback comes to you in practice and says, hey, these, the, the things you're asking me to do from this set, I can't do that comfortably to be productive. The good coaches say, okay, get rid of them. And it's one of the things I loved when Bruce Arians was interviewed, and this was four or five years ago when he had uh, Carson Palmer, and they were asking Carson what he liked about it is, he said, A, they involved me in the game planning. And when B.A. puts his list, his scripted list together, at the end of the week, Carson can come in and take plays off the list that he says, I just don't feel comfortable with. And I said, well, that's a communication. That's when you have a chance. Because it's not the – the coach can't force a quarterback to be good at certain things. Yeah. No matter how much you will it and desire it and scheme it, if the co quarterback isn't comfortable, he's not going to be good. It's one of the things that B.A. does great, and I think most good coaches do, and also most quarterbacks that are highly successful are the beneficiary of. Yeah, it's a fantastic point. And when I think of player, I mean, probably the biggest miss for me, and I think for a lot of people, and we've talked about him before too, Blaine Gabbert. Um, you yep. know, I for me, that was the value of don't weigh one era, don't weigh one year of tape more than another. And when I looked at him as a sophomore – I love the fact that he could, that he seemed to be able to play within pressure a little bit more. Nevada had a couple of nice edge rushers. I remember watching that game and being impressed with his ability to step up in the pocket and feel the pressure and make plays on the move. And he had this nice arm, seemed like a smart kid. And I thought, wow, this has like a little bit of a Brett Favre type of thing going on with him, the way he's taking contact and doing all these things. Yep. He was anything but Brett Favre. Oh, my God. You know, yeah. And when I started watching him in the pocket in terms of just the, the pressure that would get to him and how he would just short circuit, that was just a huge lesson was not to overvalue, you know, one game, one season, look at the the total especially later years because with quarterback play it, it i'll say the lesson that i got was a com combination of blaine gabbert who i like too much of and trent edwards who i think i liked appropriately but what trent happened to trent edwards is that he got popped by adrian wilson i believe it was adrian wilson and got concussed and he was never the same guy like he literally he was a guy at Stanford, when USC was that dominant team under Pete Carroll, where I'm literally watching a game where the Stanford linemen were gotten in an argument and literally gotten in a fight with each other during the play because one let the other let a rusher go and they didn't have the assignment right and they were arguing about it while Edwards was getting creamed, you know? <laughs> and and Edwards was such a tough guy and he threw the ball well and he had these he had these moments in Buffalo where you thought is he's going to turn the corner. He's looking pretty good and then he got injured like that and he was never the same player. Yep. And so what I learned was quarterback play is such a confidence game 
And there's so many small margins for error with accuracy, decision-making, processing speed, being able to feel and deal with pressure, just being able to take hits that if you get hit the wrong way, it can change your whole outlook for how you're going to play that game. Um, In the same way that if you're a baseball player and you make it to the major leagues and someone throws that 102 mile an hour fastball in your ear and you're out for a few weeks because of what that fastball, that may have never happened to you early. Because I remember as a kid, as an athlete, as a kid, you know, I played baseball for several years and I was a catcher and a second baseman and I could hit my first year, like really could hit. And they had me batting cleanup. First game, I get beamed in the head, like first game. And I could not, it was funny. I could handle getting hit playing football my whole life. I could be, I was probably the most physical, one of the most physical guys on my soccer team and was the guy that, but, but a, a little ball, a little ball could not deal with tracking that ball after getting <laughs> hit like that. And from that point on, I couldn't hit, you know, I had a difficult time hitting the football. So I think about guys who are like a Trent Edwards and a, and a Blaine Gabbard. And it's like, that can happen later in your career if it's in an egregious enough situation. And what happened with Edwards is his ability went down and, and Gabbert, he took one of those hits or something happened to him between sophomore and junior year. And he just, his game started to deteriorate more and more. And, and it's, it's volatile that way. And you have to honor that. Well, personally, there are two lessons there I'm going to bring up because I, I something I've been taught, but I just have to throw in my little league story because it relates directly to you. <laughs> So I was in a little league one year, nine to 14 year olds, all on the same team. Oh, wow. Second youngest in the whole league. Wow. And the coach, and firstly, starting center field was okay, nothing special. But the coach noticed early on that I was paralyzed at the plate, petrified. But I also didn't mind standing right at the top corner of the batter's box. So. <laughs> I was petrified. So literally over the course of the year, I made out five times. I got, I made out every other time I was at bat, I got hit. <laughs> so you so were just an, you were, a, I was literally yeah. just there to get on base and try to steal second. There you go. But I had the highest on base percentage ever in the league. And we won the title. That's awesome. But after that year, I told my mother and father, never again. My arm looks like someone took a bat to it every week. Cause I literally just stand there and get hit the first pitch every time. Because I was so scared to move, yeah. but I totally yeah. get to being paralyzed yeah. with fear. And, and it was funny because I played catcher for another four or five years. I mean, like taking hits at the plate, you know, getting hit with the ball with the equipment, not a big deal. But for some reason, swinging into a pitch that was like yep. into my hands or into, into your face as you're moving forward, just could not get past that. Getting flipped like playing wide receiver and getting not a big deal. Totally but, different thing. But the yeah. ball, it was that one yeah. little isolated thing. And I and I think about I think about players like that. And with quarterbacks with so many moving parts, that's part of that. That's part of why I'm always amazed at guys like Philip Rivers that continue to perform at a high level despite standing in there getting blown up over and over. Yeah. But the two points you made, these to me are really, I think, at every position, but quarterback more than anything. The initial game or two you do, it sets the bar. We've talked about this at other positions. Yeah. If they're truly great or they're truly bad, that becomes your point of reference. So even a guy that's terrible, 
when he plays great, you have a hard time getting over that poor start and giving him credit and moving him up. Just like a guy who has a great first game or two, you're little negatives. You always have excuses, and it's yeah. hard to pull them back down. And the thing about not having what season you watch, that's why NFL teams are always petrified of the one-season start. Because they know in the NFL, once a quarterback starts for a full year, all that film gets digested and the, just chewed up by defensive coordinators. They figure out what you can do, and they try to basically make it so, okay, here's what you do poorly. That's what you have to do if you want to survive in the NFL. Well, if they can't go back in college and see that you had one year and the college coordinators adjusted, and how did you handle that? Yeah, They have a hard time projecting, okay, because it's going to get tougher in the NFL. They're going to make you take, they're going to take away more. The defenders are going to be quicker and faster closing on the ball. So are you a guy that can adjust? And if you look, Kyler Murray had a year where he started at A&M and a year at Oklahoma. So he's not a one-year starter. Cam Newton was a one-year starter at JUCO, led him to a, a world uh, national championship, then a one-year at Auburn. So there isn't a one-year starter, if you look, that's really become a quote-unquote high-level quarterback. And that, to me, is one of the things I missed on with Mark Sanchez. Because I really liked Sanchez. I thought he had great technique. He had a good bend and a good bounce in his step when he was in the pocket. Got rid of the ball strong. Had a big arm to make all the throws. Seemed like a very confident kid. But he came from humble beginning. Not humble, but his parent firefighter was his dad. So he didn't come from a wealthy family. Had a work ethic. But when he got to the NFL, and that first year or two, they didn't ask him to do much. And they went to the AFC title game. But after those two years, when they needed him to do more, the league had figured him out. Yeah. And it was over. He couldn't do the things that were needed. And he literally like drove off a cliff. Yeah. He went from a good, solid game manager to you don't want to give me the ball in any situation. And it's a shame because you're not going to get a harder working kid, tougher kid who did everything right, but just didn't have the skill set. And that's why having that second year of college. Well, I should say this. Having that second year of college is great for NFL teams and NFL evaluators. May not be great for all the players because, hey, you want to be a first-round pick. Maybe have a great one year and get out yeah. because they won't find your faults and you can get into the NFL, get paid, and, and, and if you don't make it, at least you got paid. Yeah, but I would say, I would argue this. I think also what we learned there too was a lot about Pete Carroll because Pete Carroll, when, when Sanchez came out, Pete Carroll was like, yeah, I'd like to stay another year. I think it would be good for him. And, there, and it would be easy for someone like me and go, ah, Pete Carroll's mad because they've got, you know, he could have another year of Sanchez. He wants to, he's, it's self-interest. Yeah. But as much as there is some level of self-interest, I think what we've learned of Pete Carroll, especially over the years, is that he cared about him. And he thought if you really want a chance to become a really good quarterback and it lasts for you, you need another year of college. You need to yep. see those adjustments. We need to stair-step you into being what you can be. And I think that that was something that might have been missed out by many in, in, in that no regard. Doubt. I, I really think that a lot of quarterbacks, unless they have to, staying for that second, third year is so valuable because it becomes a job. It is that you, you have to be the hardest worker, and you really have to, whether it becomes a love or just a willingness to do it and prepare, you have to take watching film as seriously as playing in the game. Yeah. And I think sometimes that second and third year, when you can't just rely on your physical tools, 
you are forced to become a junkie of film. And if you're never forced to do that in college, the, the likelihood of you doing that when you have millions in the bank is going to be harder to develop that habit. So I've always thought with quarterbacks, unless they have a dire reason to come out, quarterbacks can play long into their 30s. Why not take advantage of another year in college, mature as a player, mature as a person, you have a much better chance of success and overcoming the failure that you're going to have, well, any quarterback does, during that first two or three years in the league. You have to have the mental toughness. And I think guys that leave early that have only played a year or sometimes two, sometimes they don't have that mental toughness to overcome the emotional highs and lows of being an NFL quarterback. For sure. So here's a guy that I busted on pretty badly. Um, and I just, I just figured you could probably tell me what was wrong with him without even like me mentioning anything. Tyler Wilson. Was that the Arkansas kid? Yes. Yes, I remember him. And I will say, I liked a lot of things about him. I remember watching him, and I would see the ball come out, and he would make rip throws. But I think what did it for me on him, I'm trying to remember for sure if it was Petrino. I think Petrino it was, Petrino. was there. Yep. Because I had missed on Brian Brown. I me liked too. Brian at Louisville. Yes, me and too. And I went back and watched Brown and saw a lot of the skills and then I went and watched Wilson. And when I watched Wilson, I said, gosh, he's not as good as Brom was in almost any area. And I thought, I said, I'm going to roll the dice here and say that Wilson is a lesser Brom in an offense that is so suited to quarterbacks that it's almost unfailable. And, and, and it's funny because that was the primary reason. I remember Wilson because I remember the first game or two I watched him. That release was quick. His arm was strong. He could make all the throws. Um, I do remember he was a little bit straight back when he threw, and that always concerns me of guys that don't move into the pass, that they sort of throw. But I got very nervous about the Petrino quarterback because of Brian Brown. I was so sure Brown was going to be a rock star. And he flamed out in a harpy that it really made me study the guys who played under Petrino much closer because it showed me Petrino was such a good coach of quarterbacks that you had to be cautious. And it's sort of the same reason Aaron Rodgers fell to 24. Every NFL team was petrified of quarterbacks coached by Jeff Tedford because he had had Akili Smith. He had had Joey Harrington. He had had the Kyle Bowler. None of them had developed because they looked like rock, rock stars because Tedford was such a great coach of quarterbacks and schemer that he could disguise weaknesses especially the ability to manipulate defenses and that was one of the issues with Rodgers that people had was could he move defenders with his eyes clearly he can and clearly the 23 teams that passed on him regret it to this day but again that to me yeah Tyler that was uh yes 100 percent he was one of those guys that I went back and looked scheme wise and that was one of the things that was a red flag for me yeah another guy for me I'll say it's kind of a mixed bag, but I think there's an important lesson to be learned from him. And that was Robert Griffin. Oh, um, me too. Oh. Yeah. Because I think, you know, I would argue that I, I wrote this a long time ago, but I kind of argued that on one hand, Mike Shanahan, I think kind of didn't want him. I don't think he wanted him. And I think that when I see, there's some things with there's some things with how Shanahan came across on the air 
talking about Robert Griffin's career that I just, it sounded too much like the type of people who I, everyone's worked with somebody dysfunctional and how that they can come across as the innocent one in this. And I was trying to do this guy good. And, you know, cause he came, he was on the air talking about how Griffin came in his second year and said, I want, I want you to develop me as a pocket quarterback. And I, you know, that, and I want to be able to have some, um, input into what I like in the offense and what I don't like in the offense after his big year. And he, and Shanahan literally was, gave an aside to this story saying, by the way, nobody does this. I, and, you know, and I'm thinking, poor kid, he doesn't really know his place, you know, and kind of implied that, you know, I'm legendary, you know, exactly. Mike Shanahan, yeah. and he's he's this green kid who doesn't know better, but whatever, I'll entertain this, but we'll see. Then I like, I asked some scouts, I'm like, well, how many quarterbacks get input in the league with, you know, with their on the level that what, you know, Shanahan was talking about. And I had multiple scouts say to me, most quarterbacks most in the league. Yeah, yeah of most course. of them do. So, but, you know, Shanahan's telling it like, you know, that Griffin's like the enemy, like the, the bad guy in this, but trying to soft pedal it as if like, he just didn't know better, but I'm still going to show you that he's the ignorant one. When in fact, I'm turn. I'm the manipulating the story. I mean, like he told this better than like if you watch Game of Thrones and that Littlefinger guy who like who basically manipulated everybody in the show. You know, I mean, like it was yep. on that par. But the point being is that I watched so much a second year of Griffin, and there was lots of Mac uh, Max protect schemes where they only sent three receivers out, and they still couldn't protect anybody, and he was getting the crap beat out of them. Now. That we can blame on Shanahan on some level, but the but to be fair, Robert Griffin, you watch him at at Baylor, and he had his pocket presence was not good. He took massive hits. He took massive punishment. And as a runner like Mariota, he was a straight line runner. So like he didn't have much line. wiggle at all. And he was a he was basically a crash test dummy with lots of speed when it came to you know, taking contact. And that's a big red flag. Those are a pair of big red flags. So, you know, whether or not he could have been really good before the injury, but you watch him now and it's like, he's just, he's like a player who never progressed and his confidence is shot on top of it. Yep. I mean, and it's funny because I liked him a lot too. I thought he had a super quick release. I thought he was super accurate. thought he had a strong enough arm. Um, I think the comfortability in the pocket was something that never developed. Um, and this is something I think that people on the outside don't understand. This is what makes it so hard to be correct is he was sold. And, he, and, don't, and I want to make sure I make this point right off the bat. This is a good kid. This is a kid who's never going to get in trouble with the law, never going to do anything, any of that stuff, military family. But he was sold by the coaches there as hardest worker, most dedicated, football means the most. He's going to do that. That's not who he is. He likes football. He doesn't love the grind. Yeah. And you have to love the grind to become a great quarterback. It's not fun. Ask Drew Brees. He'll, he talks about all the time that you have to fall in love with the process that can be born. Yeah. But you have to watch so much film of repetitive things. And I don't think RG3 ever fell in love with him because partly he's such a gifted guy mentally and physically, he could get away without doing that and just be okay. 
And I think that played an effect into it. Um, he's a disappointing one to me because I really thought he had a chance to be extraordinarily special. And that rookie year, he was. Um, and I actually thought in that offense, he was a perfect fit. Yeah. Because the way they roll out and use the motion, I thought with his foot quickness and ability to throw on the run and get the ball off quick, I thought he was a great fit. Um, I'm not going to bring up a guy I missed on, but we're telling stories here. So I'm going to bring up one of my all-time favorite stories about quarterback. I think I've told it to you a handful of times. It's actually a guy I got right, but it's not so much about getting right. It's more about the story. Um, when Jake Locker came out of college, yeah, I, I, he had gigantic grades everywhere um, because maybe the best kid, tough kid, super smart, great arm, quick release, the whole nine yards. I did not like him. I gave him a fourth-round grade. Did not think he could be a starter. And I remember going to Moby and sitting in the stands with a quarterback coach on both sides of me. And I think I told you this one. And we sat there watching him. And it was about every third ball was either a moon rocket or right into the dirt. And I turned to the one of the two quarterback coaches who I'd worked with before. And I said, guys, can you explain this to me? I said, I watched every game this year. I charted him out. I said, I don't get that this kid's going to be a top 10 pick. I said, I just don't see it. Can you impart your wisdom to me? And the quarterback coach that I'd worked with turns to me and goes, Russ, he goes, the reason is, is because he's a phenomenal young man. He's as smart as the day is long. He's got a rocket for an arm. His upper body mechanics are nearly perfect. And his lower body mechanics are nearly perfect. And he goes, the issue is he can't hit the broad side of a barn with his passes. And I said, yes, that's my point. So what do we do? He said, Russ, this is why I will not recommend we draft him. Because if we draft him, I can only do one thing to make him better, and that's pray. And he goes, I'm not drafting a guy in the first round that all I can do to fix him is pray. He goes, it is not <laughs> a recipe for success. And, and that's one of the things that I, I really believe is important, as especially you evaluate quarterbacks, is don't and – and I'm not just pointing to Locker, but he's a great example of it. Don't make excuses for mistakes. Really dive deep and try to figure out why they're doing things wrong. Because once you start making excuses, whether doesn't have good enough receivers, well, you know what? Even if the receivers are bad, doesn't make his throwing ability any different. Right. So you have to really take a deep dive. And it's something I've learned over the years. Really focus on the skill set of the quarterback, mentally and physically, to determine things. Try not to let outside mistakes by other people affect your grade on the quarterback. Oh, absolutely. And all that being said, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's funny. I I laugh about that story because I remember specifically being called every day by a Washington, a Seattle-based radio station, and they wanted to know about Jake Locker every day. They were calling me about practice reports and other players, but they kept asking me about Jake. And I had been a regular on that show for a long time, for several years. And I was like, you're not going to like what I have to tell you. And they're just <laughs> like, well, what are you saying? I'm like, he looks great in terms of like, when you watch him throw the ball, it looks great until you watch where the ball goes. And it's like, and well, is that fixable? And I'm like, that's hard to that's a hard thing to project when everything looks great. Like if he like, that's the issue. and it's like, that's the, that's the, yeah. And so it was funny. Cause I remember I just still have this mental picture of standing outside of my hotel room out in the cold. Cause there was another show going on inside with my, with our buddy Cecil who just actually wrote me and said, 
these are not the quarterbacks that you're looking for as he's referring <laughs> to senior bowl practice about, that's happening about right now, the first day of practices. That's so, great. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, Locker is a great lesson on that in that regard, just because he is a player who you look at and if the mechanics are all there and not, nothing's happening, that's Yeah, that's tough. why to me, if the guy's not accurate, he better at bad mechanics. Yeah. Because if he doesn't, I don't know how I'm going to fix the bad accuracy. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's my, to me, that's the hardest thing I have with quarterbacks is when a guy isn't accurate, he's correctly identifying what is causing it. Because if I can't, there is no way I will put a good enough grade on him. Yeah. Because if I don't know why he's not accurate, then my guess is he's never going to be accurate. Yeah. I'll just, you know, there's, I, I think that really we, we can probably, I think we're pretty good with where we're at in terms of what we've we've talked about today because I think about, you know, the lack of bad mechanics to account for a- bad accuracy. You know, we've talked about players who, you know, not not judging one year of film. Um, that's a good that was a good point. Um, pocket presence and processing speed and arm strength, baseline level skills of that. Off field you know, and, you know, is, is just massive. I mean, cause I still, to this day, I mean, I, the, the play, you know, there's players that I think Johnny Manziel could have been a good quarterback. I think Chad Kelly could have been a great quarterback. Um, if their mental makeups were different and, and that's one of those things that at, at the end of the day, you know, I look at guys like that and I think, well, I'm willing to roll with players like that if I don't know enough about their mental skill as a media scout, I'm willing to say, listen, off the field, this could be a mess. So the more you hear in terms of smoke that there's a problem there, the more you probably want to stay away. But if you're, if you're someone that's just, you want to keep an eye for a player who might sneak up on the league in a sense, because he's that good and does manage to get things together, then the, these players are for you. But, oh, you know, no as a team, as an organization, if you know that the player can't keep his head on straight, you know, can't play well with others, can't be reliable to, to be where he's supposed to be every day, as Dan Campbell mentioned, being the same player every day. If you can't be that, quarterback is not that position. No, and the thing I will add to that, because you, you mentioned Manziel, and I think he's a great example of this. People in the media like to make it sound like, oh, he had no chance. Talk to people in the NFL. Everybody who watch film will tell you he's far better than he gets credit for. His college film, his decision-making, his arm is ridiculous. Yes. The problem wasn't physical or what he could do. It was he didn't care enough to be a professional. Yeah. And most NFL teams knew this. And that's why they had him as a third to fourth round gamble, because if you hit it right, you have an all-star. But most likely he's going to bomb and he'll be out of the league. And that's where a third round super talent gets taken. But anybody who tells you, oh, he never had the tools. Well, if that's true, then just about everybody in the NFL I spoke to was wrong because every one of them to a man said physically he can do anything he wants in the NFL. It's just whether he'll make the decision to do the things to put himself in position to be the player he can. Yeah, I remember watching him, and I compared his style of play. The, the only player I could think of wasn't a football player. 
It was Muhammad Ali because Muhammad Ali did so many things off balance and not technically the way yep. that you'd want him to. He'd hit off the ropes. He was kind of, you know, the whole rope-a-dope style. You know, he didn't even, people would say he had power and there was no way you'd wonder how he had power to be able to throw a punch the way he'd throw a punch. And you'd look at Manziel and it was like he played his game that way to the point that I thought, okay, this is a guy that when he gets in the league, if everything else is focused, it's going to take him a year to figure out what he can and can't do in what he did in college. And then it's going to be on like this is yep. in the way that Mahomes was that way. Mahomes yep. was like Mahomes is in a way the pre Manziel was the precursor to Patrick Mahomes. Yep. They're not that different as, as natural throwers. Yes. And it, it's the maturity. Think about this. If Manziel had had a father who played 15 years of pro baseball and he had grown up understanding the business side of it, yeah. You might see a whole different thing because that's part of what makes Mahomes great is his mental makeup. Yeah. It's not just that he can throw it. It's he can process. He keeps his emotions under control. He can do the things that truly great quarterbacks can do. And that's why Mahomes is great. He's mentally so superior to so many other quarterbacks that come out of college. It's not just the arm ability. Yeah. It's the mental ability. Well, that's like Brady. Yeah, exactly. And on that note, we'll have Mahomes and Brady um, you know, for the Super Bowl should be a great, another great matchup. Though for Browns fans, I know, like my cousin, and we'll be saying, well, then we could have had a Mahomes Manziel conference rivalry. You know, if Manziel was a a different guy here, but you know, at the same time, that's why they are the way they are, and that's why we, you know, the, you know, we have the reality that we do. But um, no, it, this is always a great show. And it's, it's always a pleasure to be able to have Russ on and, and we'll have him on in another couple of weeks. And I think we'll be talking about taking risks on players who have off-field issues. And, and there's some that are playing in two weeks. That's right. That had major issues in college. That's right. And that may be the perfect thing to talk about is maybe we even do it a day or two early before the Super Bowl. So we can yeah. sort of accentuate a few of these guys who really have came into the league with some major issues, one in particular that is pretty astounding. And they've not only become good players, but model citizens. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it'll be great. I'm excited to talk about that. Yeah, that's going to be great. And, you know, for those of you wondering, um, you know, obviously neither of us are at the Senior Bowl this year. I will I will say that I will probably give some sort of update. I'll either see if I can get Cecil on to do a, to give his report on some things. I may have an opportunity to watch a little bit of practice here and there. And if I do, I may give some thoughts about those players. But um, otherwise, you know, all that goes is grist for the mill for the RSP. Get your RSP. It's available April 1st. You can um, pre-order um, and you'll get the RSP and the RSP post-draft. And if you're a fantasy player, I have a new product this year. Um, Two-year projections that'll be updated several times during the year, monthly pretty much from the preseason onward through December, and then once in the following year after free agency takes place so that you can, you, you know, that when you buy this, that you'll be a little bit of a head even when you, um, before, the next, um, before the next subscription comes out, and you get rankings that'll be updated as well, um, dynasty rankings for all players. So you get a combination of my fantasy experience that I've been doing since 2003 and you also get with the RSP, you know, the scouting experience that I've been doing since 2006. So thanks again, folks, and hope you guys have a great week.